We thank you, Lord, for your word to us. It's a light for our path. It is food for our soul. May it be so for us this morning. Amen. Um, today, as we uh, we are beginning our um, a new re- a new series, we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, in some ways that sort of makes perfect sense. This is what we we do in church, isn't it? We come to church, we gather around the Word of God, we open it up, we uh, we extract three points each week, we take them on board and we go home and apply them to our lives. And and I'm sure as we go through the book of Philippians over the next few weeks that there will be some good points that are made uh, which we can then take back and apply to our lives. But in our reading today, as we uh, open it up, I want to take us a little bit deeper uh, to uh, a more deeper understanding upon which any three points that we might derive later on uh, on, which they, on something on which they rest. And in our reading today, I think what we see is we have something of a deeper understanding of the heart of Paul who writes these letters, and therefore we have a deeper understanding of God's heart for us. And more than any three points, it's if we grasp that heart and take that into all that we are, that the fruits of God's work in us can spring forward naturally. I remember when I used to read Paul's letters in my youth. I don't know how many people have read them in their entirety, at least some of them. Uh, And I remember, uh, particularly when he was writing to people like the Galatians or the Corinthians, where he's needing to correct them, even rebuke them. I remember reading them feeling a little bit like what happens when you're sitting in a classroom and the teacher is getting annoyed with someone else and maybe calling them out or chewing them out and you're sitting there feeling sort of vicarious guilt. Or, or Has anyone had that experience where you feel like you're being told off too? And there'd be times when I would, I would be reading them like that, going, oh, Paul, ouch. But there came a point when I realised that I had stopped reading Paul from the point of view of one of the churches he was writing to. And I started reading Paul from his point of view. And suddenly I realised that that caricature of Paul as a grumpy, over-intellectual, dry and dusty, emotionally repressed theologian-type Puritan was actually just that. A caricature, and a false caricature at that. And I started to see that actually underneath everything that Paul writes, there is this soft, aching, and often breaking heart. And even when he is in rebuke and correct mode, it's not coming from a place of dictatorial, disciplinary rage. It's of a heart of a parent that aches a wayward child. And I saw it especially a few years ago when I was leading a church plant. And uh, it was back in those days when church growth was the, uh, was the name of the day. And when we talked about that in ministry, it was all about leadership and key point indicators and success. We were all on a mission And God wanted us to win and flourish and to be prosperous. And there was nothing wrong with that. 
It wasn't all wrong. But it was an attitude that we were picking up from the spirit of the world. It was in the days when careers and business and, and life in general was all driven about things like academic success and bank balances and home ownership. And so that came into the church. Let's wear the name of Christ and win. And of course, if you're pushing for winning, there's also the possibility of losing, you see. I was on board with this way so much. In fact, as a young, youthful, zealous person, I would look disparagingly upon my, you know, the people who had gone before me because they had left us with such a job to do. Why couldn't they have done the winning, you know? I was young. And then I got to this point where our success suddenly seemed to slow and then even stop. By God's grace, we found ourselves in a season when we weren't winning anymore. The church wasn't growing and there was conflict inside and out. And we faced adversities and obstacles. And we had to jump higher and higher to see, to see if we were trying to get anywhere. And I wondered if God had abandoned us. Because we weren't winning. I started questioning God's love. And I remember crying out, Lord, all I want to do is build you a nice church. And I'm sure others have cried out in their own career choices, Lord, all I want to do is to serve you in my job. Lord, all I wanted to do is look after my family. All I wanted to do was achieve this or that. None of it bad, but Lord, it doesn't seem like you're with me anymore. Have you abandoned us? Do you still love us? And I imagined that I was in this classroom and while the headmaster Jesus, off in a distant room somewhere, might smile at me, I was looking at Paul the teacher, this amazing missionary, and I imagined him handing me a big fat F. But then, I began to see his heart. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4 Paul writes to rebuke his church. Not because they are failing, but because they are winning. They are winning badly. They are winning according to their own strength and not according to faith. And this is what he says again. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And you're doing all that without us. And how I wish that you really had, so that we might also reign with you. Because it seems, well, even though you are triumphant, God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession with those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. We are fools for Christ. But you are so wise. We are weak. But you are so strong. You are honoured. But we are dishonoured. For this very hour we go hungry and thirsty and we are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. And when we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. And when we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. That's Paul writing. And I read more and more and Paul began to teach me that the heart of Christian ministry and of any leadership in any, in any sense that's after the heart of God 
The pursuit that we take is not towards success in its own right, certainly not success in the world's terms. Leadership and ministry is about being close to God, so close as to share his heart. And so Paul, when he talks about leadership and winning, he talks about dying for Christ, about being willing to become garbage if that's what it takes. For him, ministry is an act of carrying, holding, caring, loving, being the shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And later on in Philippians, as we'll see, the phrase he uses is to share in the sufferings of Christ. He is no theological bully. His heart is desperate to imitate the Lord's and to exercise whatever ministry or leadership or place that he has according to Christ's self-giving ways. He wants to have the mind of Christ, he says, in Philippians chapter 2, we'll get there, in which he is willing to be emptied of all glory and power, so that whatever comes, whatever success may come, is for God's glory and not his, as a gift. And so let's, as we open up this letter from Paul to the Philippians, let's ponder where he's coming from. When we come to our reading today, we see in verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul doesn't speak of how he's annoyed with them. He speaks of the joy he has for the church in Philippi. And so I start to take notice. And he has joy in them. Not because the Philippian church was one of the more easier flocks that he had to shepherd, and they were, but that's not why he's saying it. And it's not because they're especially his heart, because that was the church, the first European city that he went to. Well, I'm sure that helped. That's not the source of his joy. He's simply reflecting the joy of God's heart. It's right for me to feel this way about you, he says since I have you in my heart. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Hear that again. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is a man after God's own heart. And God is someone I can trust. So I'm going to start listening to the one who shares his heart. So let's ponder that. And here's a question that might help us ponder. Paul can write to the Philippians and say, I love you and have joy for you and long for you with the affection of Jesus himself. So when we think about ourselves and how God thinks of us, do we conceive that he has joy and affection for us? God looks upon us and smiles, that he delights, that we bring him joy. Consider the joy that Paul speaks of. What's it attached to? In verses 4 and 5, he says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. I am confident, he says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He has this heart of joy because of all of you share in God's grace with me, he says. That's why I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And the only image I can grasp that sort of encapsulates this joy 
is a parental image or perhaps the joy you might have had if you're an older brother or you have someone that, that, that like a mentor or someone anyone that you've you've poured yourself into and invested in them there's a joy in the teaching there's a joy in the educating there's a joy in the investing in people but the greatest joy is then whatever we've poured out into them takes root in their lives and rather than being recipients of all that we have, they begin to share that with us. In my life, there is a small child who calls me Pa. She is 18 months old. And in and of herself, she is delightful most of the time. You can see her exploring her vocabulary at the moment, playing with words, learning to communicate. And there's a good work that has started in her. You see what I'm saying? It's being worked out in her. And each step is a delight as it becomes more, less and less about teaching. This is an apple, not a banana. And more and more about her sharing, conversing, conveying her own ideas that haven't come from us, but have come from her. Some of you know I may roast my own coffee. It's a process of weighing out coffee beans and putting them in the roaster. And I can tell you, it's a lot less efficient when there are little hands helping me. But there is a greater joy as I share that process. And similarly, my own biological children are growing up. Today is my daughter's birthday and she turns 20. None of my children are teenagers anymore. Yesterday, my children were babies. And now they're adults. And there's very little that I can teach them anymore. They all, in their own way, have surpassed me in their many endeavours. Their work is even more completed. And that causes my joy to overflow. And this is how, the Paul, this is how Paul sees the Philippians. Not too many years earlier, they had, he had simply turned up to Philippi... He had preached and prayed with a small group of people who met by a river. And not only did they come to faith, but they seized hold of it for themselves with such a vigour that they pursued the ways of God. And Paul didn't stay with them very long. But a work was started in them by the power of God. And now Paul delights in it. So how do we think God looks at us? Has he not started a work in us? in each of us individually, in our homes and in this church? Do we think that God is out to get us, drip-feeding us little bits of grace like a carrot on a stick until he finally got reason to fail us and give us an F? Is that how we think? Or has he started a work in us that is his joy to bring us to completion? I know in my brokenness, I still imagine the hovering fail. I tr- I know in my brokenness that I can tremble before this image of the harsh school teacher. And for sure, none of us are perfect and we make mistakes. And sometimes God loves us with discipline. But none of it takes away from the fact that he has started a work in us. And it is his delight to see it through to completion. He is for us in ways beyond what we can ask or imagine. And Paul the pastor reflects that heart. Too often I hear it. It's a theological cliche. It's a trope. 
It says, Jesus is good, but Paul is bad. I don't need to listen to him. And every time I hear that line, I say, you have neither understood or read Paul or Jesus. For sure, Paul is just a reflection of the greater glory of Christ. But look at what is reflected. And that's what Paul turns to. Throughout this book, we'll see him turning towards the greater light with a heart filled with prayer. And a prayer that he offers in this reading for his church. And at the risk of sounding like a charismatic, that prayer can be summed up in two words. More, Lord. More. More of what? More of you, Jesus. More of your work in us. Lord, do more. It's a prayer for more love. You can see it in verse 9. And not just a sickly sweet love or a cliched slogan love, but a love that abounds in knowledge and depth of insight. A love that is expressed through wisdom, is able to discern what is best and what is pure and blameless and what is not. A love that does a work that produces the fruit of righteousness, goodness, joy and beauty that reflects and shines the glory and praise of God. So Lord, more of that. That's the work you're doing in us. More of that. We want to amplify your joy. We want to increase your delight. We want to please you. Whether we are in chains like Paul is, or free in our prosperity, Lord, do your work in us. I don't let that you, but I will follow Paul in that prayer. It's our hope. It's what we want. It's what we desire to bring joy to the Lord. And right now we could say Amen and finish there. But there's one more thing to ponder as we finish. What God's heart is for us. If we pray for and pursue and say more love, more of your work in our lives, what do we do with that? Here's the trick I think us Westerners often miss. When we talk about wanting more of God's love in our lives and then what we do is we end up putting ourselves back in that classroom with the hovering fail. And we look up at our teacher and we turn it into this. Yes, Lord, I know you love me. Now let me prove that I'm worthy of your love. I'll live a godly life. I'll do the right thing. I'll partner in the gospel with you and prove that I'm worthy of your joy. You know how we do that? Look what I've done. I've turned it around. Lord, I'll do a good work in me so that once it's complete, you can love me and rejoice. But that's not what Paul is rejoicing in. It's the other way around. God loves us, rejoices in us, rejoices in you, and he does the good work in you. And he will bring it through to completion. And that's what he delights in and what Paul delights in as well. We don't pursue God's love by trying to earn it. We don't pursue God's love by proving our completion, but simply by desiring his work in us that he will complete. And this comes from simply knowing his heart, as Paul does, and trusting in it. That is what changes us. And rather than having to strive for a big church or a successful job or a fruitful life, we come to share in the love of God as it grows in us. We come to share in his sufferings. We learn to pass through the storms and shames covered by him. We are helped to feel what he feels. 
And so we love others with his wisdom and understanding and his sense of what is right and wrong, his sense of justice. We pursue that justice without getting lost in the trauma of it because we find our hearts breaking and held by him. And so we become whole in him. And we learn that it's not something that we can generate except by pursuing his heart, yearning for him and letting him work in us. So as we begin this journey in Philippians and continue it over the next few weeks, both through this book and in our lives, can I encourage us simply to start here. Don't read this as scolded children, but as God's people invited into sharing his heart, sharing his joy, and so learning to follow him. Amen. Amen.